0: This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org.
1: Navigating Parkinson's disease can be challenging, but we're here to help. Welcome to the Michael J. Fox Foundation podcast. Tune in as we discuss what you should know today about Parkinson's research, living well with the disease, and the foundation's mission to speed a cure. Free resources like this podcast are always available at michaeljfox.org. Welcome to this podcast edition of our Fall Year in Review Research Roundtable, where we gathered with expert panelists to delve into the state of Parkinson's research and drug development, the incredible steps forward we've taken this year, and what to watch out for over the next 12 to 18 months. I'm Maggie Kuhl, Director of Research Communications at the Foundation, and I'm here with our Co-Chief Scientific Officers, Dr. Brian Fisk and Dr. Mark Frazier. Thanks for joining me.
2: Good morning. Good morning.
1: Thanks for doing this today. So um, as you know, given COVID, not everyone who normally would have joined our roundtable in New York was able to be with us this year. So we are sharing highlights from the event in this podcast. Rest assured that what you'll hear about represents just a small fraction of the work of the Foundation and others in Parkinson's research. We think some of these are the most important stories for patients, families, and researchers to follow. So to kick us off, I'm actually going to play a clip from our moderator from the New York Roundtable. Dr. Katie Kopel, who is Vice President of Research Partnerships at the Foundation, carried us through the conversation in person, and we're going to hear from her on where that conversation started. We were going to start where we always want to. How close are we to a cure? So, Brian, we'll touch on some specific targets uh, in our conversation today, but. Curious your thoughts in general. Where are we towards this urgent need to slow or stop disease? How close are we to a
2: cure? A really great question. Of course, the the billion trillion dollar question for for people with Parkinson's, and probably you know the thing that has been a big driver of that uh, over the last twenty years or so is it's really the power of genetics. And as a reminder for those who haven't maybe had a biology class in a while. Uh, you know, genes are basically the instructions in the cells that help uh, to, or that tell the cell how to make particular proteins. So when you change the, the underlying genetics, you essentially change the recipe for those proteins. And so, uh, when we look at that in Parkinson's, ultimately it points to biology uh, in the cell that, when altered, can lead to Parkinson's disease. And, with that knowledge in hand, we can actually look at kind of everybody with Parkinson's and start asking the question, okay, is that same biology altered in those people as well, even if they don't have those specific genetic changes?
1: So it sounds like genes teach us where to look, and some of what we find might be shared from people who don't have those genetic changes, but really applicable across the broader population. And Mark, That is the story of a key target called alpha-synuclein that we talk a lot about in Parkinson's research.
0: Yeah, alpha-synuclein is, if not the most important target, but one of the most important targets in Parkinson's. And the reason researchers are so interested in it is really for two reasons. One is everyone has alpha-synuclein protein in their body, whether you have Parkinson's or not. But in people with Parkinson's disease, alpha-synuclein protein um, becomes sticky and misfolded and clumps up um, in the brains of people with Parkinson's, and in particular brain cells. And the the hypothesis is that if you can reduce uh, this clumpiness, this this stickiness in alpha-synuclein, you can actually slow or potentially even stop progression of Parkinson's disease. The second reason that researchers are really interested in alpha-synuclein is Um, kind of a story that Brian described where it was a story from our genetic understanding of Parkinson's disease. And there's rare families that have a high prevalence of Parkinson's in multiple generations in their families. Just having too much alpha-synuclein in these rare families actually causes Parkinson's disease. And so this is why researchers really are interested in alpha-synuclein as a target.
1: At the round table, MJFF, Special advisor and president and senior scientist at the Institute for Neurodegenerative Disorders in Connecticut, Dr. Ken Merrick recapped the state of alpha synuclein therapies right now.
3: It's a very exciting time uh, where we're seeing, uh, you know, a number of different ways of reducing the amount of synuclein in the brain in individuals with Parkinson's. I think we have an enormous number of. Uh, of trials and, and opportunities in front of us. So Mark, tell us a bit about the trials.
0: Sure, there's a real diversity of strategies that different researchers and groups are taking Some of the recent news, um, we've had some successes and some failures. So earlier this year, there was a report from a company called Biogen that actually reported they were not successful in their um, therapeutic approach. It was an immunotherapy approach that did not seem to change Parkinson's disease, and they've halted their program. But within the same month or so, there was a report out of the company Roche that is developing a similar immunotherapy that reported some positive findings in their phase two clinical trials. And so they are moving forward with their program. We also just last week or so had an announcement from a company called Modag that we supported the early development of their alpha-synuclein drug program. And they recently partnered with Teva, which is a larger pharmaceutical company, that's going to take their development forward. So there's actually a, around 13 different clinical trials that we're tracking, all developing um, different alpha-synuclein-based drugs. We are optimistic that several of them will look promising.
1: Yeah, and you know, I think it's important to add too that we learn from every unsuccessful trial. I don't even like to use the word failure because. You take something away, whether it's crossing one approach off the list and devoting more resources to others, or finding something about the biology that informs your next generation. So, it's important to say that a discontinued program is not for naught. Uh, and the the company that you mentioned, Biogen, that is no longer working on that particular therapy in alpha synuclein, is doing a lot against another target, lurk two, or LRRK2. And uh, we had on our panel as well, the Senior Director of the Neurodegeneration Research Unit at Biogen, Warren Hurst. Dr. Hurst did share an update from some of the deals that Biogen has had in the lab 2 space and the work that he's doing there.
3: Last
0: year, we partnered with Denali, and so we're working with them and basically ramping up to start phase two studies in the very near future with a small molecule. And then the program that I lead behind that, which is the ASO program, we're in the phase one studies.
1: So, Brian, I'm going to toss it to you to tell us more about Lix2. Then Warren mentioned uh, another abbreviation, ASO, which stands for anti. Sense oligonucleotide, I believe. So maybe you
2: could explain that as well. Sure, sure. Yes. Mutations in the gene LRRK2 are actually really exciting. Uh, two independent research groups discovered those in about 2005 uh, in two back-to-back papers. And that really kind of opened, I think, the, the genetic vault in a way, because soon after those initial publications, people started looking at lots of other uh, families and other populations and found that mutations in the LRRK2 gene seem to explain about you know, two to four percent of Parkinson's overall. But in certain populations, actually people of Ashkenazi Jewish descent and people of North African Arab Berber descent, uh, anywhere between 30 and 40 percent of their Parkinson's cases might be linked to mutations in this gene LRK2. So really powerful um, genetic discovery that really kind of opened the door. Now, when they started to look at the biology of the LERK2 protein, so the the protein that the LERK2 gene uh, instructs the cell to make, um, what they found very quickly was the LERK2 protein is a type of protein called a kinase. And this is actually kind of a common cellular um, mechanism that cells use to... Uh, essentially signal changes in the cell. Once they discovered that LRRK2 is one of these types of kinases, uh, it allowed drug makers very quickly to start thinking about how to make drugs against that type of protein. What we know about the mutation uh, that is linked to LRRK2 is we think that it increases its activity. So it makes the the LRRK2 protein more active. Most companies then are focused on the idea of, can you try to dampen down the activity of the LRRK2 protein in people with, with Parkinson's uh, with this mutation? That's kind of where a lot of the leading programs have started. And so uh, Denali are leading a, a small molecule program right now in clinical testing uh, of a so-called LRRK2 inhibitor. Uh, and they're one of you know several companies that are sort of approaching it in that way. You mentioned Biogen also has this other interesting program using a so-called anti-sense oligonucleotide. It's that RNA that then the cell uses to actually make the actual protein uh, that the cell needs. Researchers have discovered over the number of years that you can develop approaches that can actually target the RNA if you want to, say, block the production of a particular protein. In the case of LERC 2 the idea that Biogen also approached uh, was, can we actually use a so-called antisense oligonucleotide, which is just a fancy term for an approach that can go in and target that RNA and, and block it, basically. Can we use that as another way to reduce lrk 2 So in effect, reducing its activity. So they're uh, currently testing this approach as well, in addition to partnering with Denali on the, on the small molecule approach.
1: I love that about science. There are so many different targets for each single target. There is the instruction manuals, the production factory, what actually happens after the thing's made, and that increases our likelihood of success. So just a a timing update, the Denali and Biogen trial, their next phase is slated to begin soon, so we're all anxiously awaiting that. There's a lot of momentum in that department as well. And another thing that Warren had said at the roundtable, it's great that we started those studies, those human trials, so quickly after the discovery of LERC-2 tied to Parkinson's, but The Fox Foundation has really been leading innumerable efforts to better understand and measure Lurk Two and other targets while these trials are happening. So, Brian, maybe you could just give us a little color on what Warren meant by that.
2: Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, Lurk Two, there may be other ways we can think about it. And even though the the drug development around Lurk Two happened very quickly. There's still a lot of biology we don't understand. For example, there's evidence that suggests that LERK2 might have some role in the immune system. So what does that tell us about targeting the immune system for Parkinson's? So scientists are really looking at the biology of LERK2 and what that's helping us think about is different ways we might be able to target LERK2 directly or the LERK2 mechanism. So there's a lot of work that's still happening, but we don't want to wait until we know everything before we start making drugs. We need to start making drugs and trying out these ideas as fast as we can and as fast as we feel like we can, you know, uh, reasonably and safely do so, uh, but at the same time, continue to explore the biology. I, I think it's important to
0: also appreciate that these clinical trials are really experiments. And, you know, not every experiment works and is, has a successful outcome. But what we really want is for every experiment to be informative. So we learn from um, even the trials that may not demonstrate improvement of Parkinson's disease. And what we've seen, I think, particularly recently, is the sharing of information from these experiments that I think historically sat in the vaults of companies is more widespread. So companies know that Parkinson's is hard and they're actually incentivized to share data and even potentially samples, bio samples that were collected in these trials to really learn as much as possible about these trials, whether they were successful or failed. And I think that's one role that the Fox Foundation continues to play is to convene these groups together to share information about their experiments, regardless of the outcome. And it's exciting to see the willingness to share.
1: Absolutely. Let's get these trials, these experiments started as safely and as smartly as we can, but let's keep learning and evolving so that we continue to increase our likelihood of success and the speed towards those new treatments. To pivot a bit, Mark, the way to curb The numbers of people with Parkinson's may not be only to deliver a therapy after or close to diagnosis, but really remove the triggers that lead to Parkinson's disease in the first place. Can you talk to us about the environment's role in Parkinson's and some of the foundation's work in trying to mitigate those risks?
0: Sure. We know that environment can contribute to many disorders, including Parkinson's disease. We know that it's been shown that. Parkinson's is more common in rural areas than in urban areas. We know that certain pesticides in animal models and rats and mice can contribute and cause Parkinson's disease in those animals. And so there is an environmental component to Parkinson's disease. The challenge is that understanding the role of different environmental factors are really hard studies to do. They require hundreds if not millions of people and exquisite amount of data to that really tracks what toxicant or uh, environmental pesticide was used and when. And um, Parkinson's is a uh, chronic disorder that may be influenced by an earlier exposure to a pesticide, but one may not develop Parkinson's for many, many years. So it requires a really different type of data set to understand these environmental factors. We recently embarked on an effort to fund more of this research and actually uncovered through our funding mechanisms some really interesting data sets that could be used to answer the questions about the role of environment in in Parkinson's disease. And um, we're funding a couple focused on Um, military exposures. Um, So we know that traumatic brain injury and head trauma is a risk factor for Parkinson's disease. There also are some data sets that track exposures of toxicants um, to our veterans. And so we're supporting work on that. We're supporting a project out of Finland that is looking at air pollutions uh, and air pollutants and the risk of developing Parkinson's disease. And then also one in California that's combining uh, the role of genetics and uh, pesticides that has a really unique database where we have information on individuals with and without Parkinson's. We have their genetic information and pretty exquisite information about which pesticides were used in different farming communities. And so we can start to sort of peel back the onion and ask these questions about what's the role of the environmental factors in parkinson's disease that will then allow us to potentially remove those environmental factors and advocate for removal of those factors that could actually eliminate or reduce the the prevalence of parkinson's disease
2: this concept of gene and environment you know i think one of the really important parts of this is appreciating that although at the extremes you know there might be you know, fairly pure genetic forms of Parkinson's and at the other extreme, possibly fairly pure um, forms of Parkinson's driven by, you know, some sort of environmental toxin exposure, that they're not mutually exclusive, and that there's likely this sort of mixture of gene and environment in the middle that explains possibly, you know, a good percentage of the cases of Parkinson's. What's sort of exciting about some of these, this more recent work is that we can really start to explore those two um, components in a more sophisticated way, and I think really uncover more meaningful understanding of the causes of Parkinson's.
1: Absolutely. And while we are building some of that data, we do have some information on some toxicants that do raise risk of Parkinson's disease, and our policy arm is supporting uh, legislation to limit or ban use of, in particular, one herbicide paraquat that has been linked to increased Parkinson's risk. So if that is of interest to you and you want to learn more, encourage you to check out the facts and take action through our website, michaeljfox.org. One thing that we also know about Parkinson's is that people have a range of symptoms that come with the disease. And Brian, there's been a number of Therapies approved over the last two decades, I think nearly twenty or so against a range of symptoms, the motor, the non-motor aspects that come with the disease. And the foundation has supported a real catalog of innovative approaches over the last
2: year. Yeah, we can you know think about those ultimate cures, you know fixing you know the underlying damage, repairing the brain, even preventing Parkinson's altogether. That's really our long game, but you know it's critical, of course, to be thinking about what can we do about the symptoms today that people suffer today. The cells, one of the, the key uh, types of cells that degenerate in, in, in Parkinson's disease, are cell brain cells that make the chemical dopamine. So we've figured out over the years way different ways of targeting that dopamine, either through giving an early precursor version of dopamine called levodopa, or targeting the the breakdown of dopamine but as the disease progresses uh, that becomes a little more complicated so obviously the brain continues to change cells continue to die drug makers have looked at different delivery mechanisms so for example um you know two relatively recent drugs that were approved one is a way of uh, uh, delivering levodopa through an inhaler and then another um, approach uses a different chemical that sort of mimics the actions of dopamine delivered as essentially an oral strip, almost like a breath mint type strip. Um, And both approaches really are intended to help people um, at those later stages of Parkinson's. A couple of companies uh, out there that are focused on uh, sort of subcutaneous, so under the skin type of approaches that can deliver uh, dopamine a little bit more continuously. And so uh, we're looking forward to seeing the outcomes of those trials. And focusing on dopamine and the motor symptoms, of course, aren't the only uh, progress we want to see. It's really the non-motor features, uh, cognition and dementia and constipation and sleep and a whole variety of other features that are really, uh, I think, problematic for people with Parkinson's, especially as the disease progresses. And another big problem, especially in later stages, is uh, our problems with gait and balance. Uh, So people uh, with Parkinson's will often, especially as the disease progresses, start having um, issues with their gait uh, and balance and you know can lead to falls. and so what we've seen there is actually a lot of innovation as um, as different companies try to develop um, um, different types of devices and uh, assistive uh, uh, devices so that people can hopefully walk a little bit better walk a little bit more confidently with uh, with their symptoms. And that's another area that we're sort of seeing some some real promise uh, uh, and progress happening. Great, right. great. Right.
1: I think a theme of a lot of the work here is trying to help people with Parkinson's. And our roundtable panelist, patient council member, Brian Roberts, said it best.
0: The thing that excites me with the Parkinson's research is that we're not just following one thing. We keep looking at different areas, but where does this come from? It comes from a patient's voice, and that's really important.
1: A theme of uh, a lot of biomedical research, our foundation as well, in the recent past has been listening to more patients with broader inclusivity. We had on our panel at the round table, managing director of the Aligning Science Across Parkinson's Initiative, Dr. Akemeni Riley, which is supporting a,
4: her initiative ASAP is supporting a program to broaden Parkinson's understanding. There's a lot we don't know. And so thinking about how best we address those gaps so that we get concrete answers in a shorter amount of time. And we're fortunate um, to be partnering with the Fox Foundation. Um, They bring both um, implementation prowess, but also thought leadership and expert scientists on staff. Yeah, I mean, the
0: ASAP initiative is really exciting. It's a large initiative that's providing significant amount of funding around open science and sharing and collaboration across research efforts. There's really three main activities within ASAP. One is to fund some basic understanding in laboratories to understand what causes Parkinson's disease, um, understand the basic biology and funnel mental biology contributing to Parkinson's disease. The second is a large-scale genetics initiative to expand the number of individuals for whom we have genetic information to really increase our understanding of the genetic contribution to Parkinson's disease, particularly to individuals that may not have participated in research in the past. And then the third major activity is to fund a study that is focused on measuring and diagnosing Parkinson's more precisely. This is the Parkinson's Progression Marker Initiative study that the Fox Foundation has supported uh, for some time. And uh, the Michael J. Fox Foundation is an implementation partner with the ASAP initiative, so we're really excited to be involved with it.
1: Brian, Parkinson's genetic understanding from a population of European descent, and as Mark mentioned, ASAP's effort to change that and really expand this pool of samples and thereby our understanding of the disease.
4: Right now, about 95% of the genetic data sets that have been produced on Parkinson's disease and several other diseases um, are concentrated in people of European descent. How do we expand that? How do we really understand what we're going after?
2: The Global Parkinson's Genetics Program, or GP2 for short, it's a huge, you know, massive five-year effort to try to essentially collect genetic information from more than 150,000, you know, people around the world. They'll be looking at genetics really in two ways. Uh, They want to obviously look and explore in a large number of people with and without PD, um, sort of look for common genetic um, signals and sort of signatures of Parkinson's disease. But they're also going to be looking at a number of um, families with Parkinson's. There probably is a a higher risk uh, genetic cause of their parkinsons but yet where that signal has yet to be identified also a uh, global collaborative environment people around the world who are all involved in the gp2 effort uh, investigators from from many many countries including many sort of underrepresented populations and countries and all this data ultimately being made available as a genetic resource for uh, the parkinsons uh, research community to uncover and hopefully identify new therapeutic targets for parkinsons disease
1: Just over the last week or two, ASAP and MJFF as its partner announced $132 million in funding over three years to 14 teams looking at brain circuitry and brain-body connections, sort of what's going on in the brain and the body in Parkinson's disease and how it's all connected. Mark, you mentioned that ASAP is also partnering in our PPMI study. Ken Merrick, who we heard from before, is the principal investigator
3: of PPMI. So the Parkinson's Progression Marker Initiative, or PPMI, uh, is a project that began, you know, about ten, 10 plus years ago. It was really, uh, you know, an enormously innovative project that uh, Fox developed with the idea that it was important to think ahead. The information that's been acquired as a result of that project has been used to really accelerate therapies. And that's been great. Uh, But what is even better uh, is that now uh, with the uh, support of both Fox and ASAP, uh, we can do so much more. PPMI has
0: found individuals, volunteers, both with Parkinson's and without Parkinson's, and asked them to contribute to a study by going to clinical centers, usually academic hospitals, and contributing imaging, brain scans, biofluids, blood, and spinal fluid, and urine, as well as undergo some clinical testing um, by a neurologist to test memory and motor symptoms. Uh, And the study is happening all over the world in about um, 50 different sites globally. And uh, to date, in the last 10 years, there have been about Um, 1,500 individuals with and without Parkinson's that have contributed information and data to this study. And as Dr. Merrick mentioned, it's already really accelerated our understanding of Parkinson's disease. But more importantly, the data has been used to inform clinical drug programs and design of clinical trials in a way to make those clinical trials more informative. We are expanding, as he alluded to, to expand from 1,500 individuals to about 4,000 individuals globally that are participating in this study. And I should mention that anyone that's interested in learning more about the study, whether you have Parkinson's or not, can uh, learn more and and see if they're eligible to participate. You can visit the michaeljfox.org website slash PPMI. But this is a really exciting opportunity because we are finding and increasing our ability to find individuals that are at risk for developing Parkinson's before symptoms even develop. The study can enroll individuals to really understand what changes, what measurements are changing in the body before uh, developing Parkinson's disease so we can use those indicators as ways to identify individuals and potentially even treat before symptoms develop.
2: There are also some clinical features that might be early indicators of Parkinson's. The loss of smell function is one particular uh, robust, early clinical sort of sign of Parkinson's. Uh, it's not very specific. Of course, a lot of reasons why you might lose your sense of smell, including unfortunately over the last two years, people who experience COVID experience a sense of loss of smell. But uh, we do know at least that in people with Parkinson's, a good percentage of them do have abnormal smell function. Another clinical sign we've seen are that people who exhibit a certain sleep disorder called REM behavior sleep disorder, and the people who have this disorder Uh, move around a lot more when they're dreaming and sometimes could be, you know, very physically uh, uh, disruptive to their sleep, if uh, certainly their bed partner's sleep as well. So with these various clinical and genetic features, we can actually start to identify people who might be close to developing Parkinson's and if we can find those people and if we can get some uh, safe treatments uh, that can be used in those individuals. Uh, we might be able to actually delay the onset of Parkinson's altogether.
1: So many people are using PPMI, looking to PPMI for these answers that they seek to advance research, and that includes industry. Warren Hurst on our panel at the roundtable spoke a bit about the impact of having these disease measures on drug development programs.
0: PPMI, you know, in terms of the consortia there, and there's many industry partners that are that are within that. And I think this speaks to the open nature of the work that the Fox Foundation are doing and how that, you know, we realize that we can't just take this on, on our own. Mark,
1: you alluded to this earlier, open science, this data sharing that PPMI has led the field in and ASAP is also um, really pushing for and advancing in, in its programs as well. Uh, Warren Hurst spoke about this um, as well as the kennedy Riley's
4: Open science, open data, this is key to shortening the time to getting information out and actually integrating it into research. Mark, tell us more about open science, why it's so important.
0: Yeah, well, you know, science and research and drug development can be a very competitive industry, right? And there's incentives to be the first to publish something or the first to discover some new finding or the first to get a treatment approved we see a lot of inefficiencies when sharing is not done and actually slowing of progress when people are being competitive and not sharing tools or information in real time. And so what the foundation and the ASAP initiative have emphasized is this more open science concept. And so that can look In a number of different ways. It can look in the way of PPMI, where new data from that study are uploaded every week. Every week, this is an open study where every week there are new data shared. And it's shared through a research portal that is accessed by thousands of researchers around the world. It's not just the leadership of the study that can access the data. Anyone around the world can access the data with legitimate credentials. This is all anonymized data, um, but we think it's important to share. Open science can look like fostering collaborations across global research teams. So the ASAP initiative and their collaborative research network is funding research across different laboratories that are sharing information in real time through teleconferences, video conferences, and in-person meetings. Um, They're funding not just within teams, but across teams as these laboratory teams generate useful research tools that they're using in their own laboratories. They're expecting and mandating these teams to share these tools in real time with the other research groups. And we think by using this open concept, and and the foundation has supported this model for a number of years, we really think that we can break down silos, accelerate progress, and get to new treatments and new discoveries faster. And so that's really what we mean when we talk about open science.
1: You mentioned how PPMI data is available PPMI data is downloaded on average every 40 seconds. So we are not just offering it. People are taking us up on it. And there is this real sense of, of community and collaboration, which I think, as Brian said, leads to, to real optimism here. And just to, to round out our conversation, we're going
3: to have a bite from Ken Merrick again. I've been you know, engaged in trying to find uh, therapies for Parkinson's disease for about 30 years and I think what is remarkable is that really in the past five to 10 years, you know, the pace of uh, discovery has uh, you know, really accelerated uh, so much.
1: So to, to close this out, I might ask both of you to reflect on that statement from Ken. What is behind that acceleration of the pace of discovery? And what does that mean for the future? Sorry, maybe you first.
2: Yeah, no, I think it's a really, you know, a powerful statement that Ken makes. And you know, for me, when I think of that, I just think of a lot of the work that I uh, support through the foundation is more focused on kind of the therapeutic pipelines. And I and I look at that, you know, uh, list of different trials, you know, pretty regularly with the team as we think about the different types of uh, funding we can give out and. Just you know the number of irons in the fire, uh, the number of shots on goal, whatever analogy you want to use. It just the the whole pipeline is just so robust right now with with ideas being developed and tested for Parkinson's and so much of that really in the last you know you know five to ten years. Seeing that that progress has been re- you know just I think really exciting to see and obviously you know a lot of unknowns ahead as these uh, trials uh, report out the results and as we talked about before you know these are experiments like any other. Uh, but again, I rather have multiple experiments running in parallel than no experiments at all. Yeah,
0: I mean I I think it's interesting to hear Dr. Merrick say that and I'd like to think that there's two reasons behind that pace of discovery that he talked about, one scientific, one not scientific. You know, the not scientific reason I think is this open science concept through initiatives like PPMI and other consortia that the foundation and other funders have Driven, where it's really changed the culture of how researchers are collaborating and um, developing uh, new discoveries and new treatments. So there's just really been a sea change in not just the culture, but it's really just an expectation that researchers will be collaborating in a way that they hadn't done, you know, in, prior to the last ten years. I think the other scientific reason or technical reason is that there's been this sort of two waves colliding of really advanced molecular and genetic technologies that have become cheaper and more widespread to enable discoveries, along with our computing power and our ability to collect and aggregate and analyze large amounts of data, genetic data and other data that have really accelerated that pace of progress. So that's been really exciting to see.
1: So it sounds like both what you can do and what you will do with that Collaboratively. Um, well, great. Thank you both so much. Um, and thank you all for listening. There are so many ways to get involved. We touch on a lot of different um, inroads to change here. And Mark, we'll hear more from you on what's happened this year in our webinar on November 18th. So join us live on that date. Or if you're listening after, you can watch anytime on demand again at our website, michaeljfox.org. Many thanks for supporting what we do. Uh, And Brian and Mark, I don't know about you guys, but it's a fun way to start my morning. So I thought we might uh, do more of these in the future. So if you two enjoyed listening, then stay tuned for more of these and see you next time.
0: Thanks, Maggie. Thank you.
1: Did you enjoy this podcast? Share it with a friend or leave a review on iTunes. It helps listeners like you find and support our mission. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation at michaeljfox.org. Thanks for listening.
0: This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org.